This is about Paul's, Paul's journeys. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 26. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing round me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets of Moses, prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is God's word. May he bless it to us. Before Peter comes to preach to us, we'll sing one more song, 987, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. Let's stand and sing this together and then pray for Peter.
We're uh, week three of a four-part series on uh, the basic building blocks of a belief system. And we've said over the past couple of weeks that we're all believers, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or a not Christian or uh, another religion, any label, doesn't matter. We're all believers in something, and in fact, lots of things. And what we believe in determines how we live our lives. And so what we're doing is we're digging down below all the, the sort of superficial stuff and below all the standard uh, basic ideas that we tend to talk about. We're digging down underneath and we're saying that underneath it all, there is a foundation. And that foundation is made up of four building blocks. And our answer to the four questions of those four building blocks will determine how we live our lives, what we live for, the whole thing. Everything is built on that foundation. And so the first building block, the first question we asked a couple of weeks ago, anybody remember it? Which God? That's right. Which God is God? What is He like? And so we looked that week at uh, Paul's journeys, uh, was it first and second journey, where he came to Lystra and he came to Athens, two groups of people that had no Bible awareness. They'd never been to Sunday school. They'd never heard any stories. They knew nothing about the Bible. And in both cases, Paul presented to them the God of the Bible. He answered the question, which God is God? And he made it very clear that their understanding of God that they had naturally was not acceptable. It wasn't right. It was completely off target. And so from scratch, he presented God, God's life-giving, generous, kind, patient nature. In Athens, he added and to that with more detail, uh, talked about how God is in charge wanting to uh, orchestrate and sovereignly work out the pur- uh, His purposes in the world, which are for us to seek Him and find Him. But there's a time limit because Jesus, who He rose from the dead, is coming back to judge. And so there was that uh, elongated, expanded version of the same presentation that Paul gave in Lystra. And so, which God is God is a massive question, and if we get the wrong God, everything else is going to go wrong. And so, it's important that we understand what the Bible says about God. What is He like? What is His character? What is His personality? What is His nature? What is His ultimate goal? And we've thought over last week as well as the week before that God of the Bible is not a God who is obsessed with His own power, but a God who is uh, powerfully loving the Father loving the Son, and the Son loving the Father by the Spirit. And it's out of that love relationship that is our God that His creation and then everything else spills out. And so we've got a relational God, not just a a power God or a a, a mono-God, a one-on-His-own kind of God. We've got a God who loves and a God who gives. And so last week we came to the second question. The second question, if the first one was about God, the second one was about what? Yeah, humanity. In, in what image are we made? Is God made in our image? Of course not. Although we tend to do that, we're made in His. We're made in the image of a God who's relational. Therefore, our lives, despite everything the world tells us, our lives are designed to be lived in relationship. And so, we, last week we had the contrast between the CV approach to life, where I just try to distinguish myself from you by what I know, how much I've earned, what I've achieved, all those kind of things. And it's a distinguishing, competitive kind of thing, which actually, I was chatting with Bruce afterwards, and he said, you know, I, don't, I never hired people based on CVs. And I, I said, I thought as much. I just didn't want to quote you without speaking to you first. The CV is only there to try to get someone's attention, but actually, a wise businessman is going to hire 
compared them based on an interview, based on interaction. Why? Because we're relators. And so instead of the CV, we're made in the image of a God who's not trying to distinguish himself and show off how special and unique he is. We're made in the image of a God who's a relator, a God who says, look at my son, listen to him, I'm delighted in him. And then you turn to the son and the son says, oh, my father is the greatest and I just want to do whatever he says. And, and the, the honor and the glory and the love is going back and forth. And we are made in that image. We're made for relationship with a relational God. And so if we have a relational God and we're made in the image of a relational God, then we come to the third question. And that is this one. What's the deal with the separation? Because we all know, don't we, that from our youngest days, our instinct constantly was not to reach out to God. Our instinct has not been to say, uh, I'm just going to ask God what he thinks. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to ask God. I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to rely on God. Instead, our instinct has been sinful, right? I've had five children, and so far, consistently, they're sinners. Everyone, we were all sinners from the start. And, and there's this thing called sin that, that seems to somehow explain, in some way, the separation between us and God. And so the question then is this, what is our problem? What is sin? How deep is our problem? How deep does it go? And so today we're going to talk about sin. Aren't you glad that you came to church today to hear about sin? Because it's such a, a, an important subject. And so I, I didn't announce it because I thought you wouldn't show up. So what is sin? Well, we know what sin is, right? Sin is, you know, it's, it's like it's, it's lying and cheating and adultery and, and murder and it's stealing. That, that's sin, isn't it? We all know what sin is. Okay, so what's the solution? Well, the solution is clear biblically. Repent and then do the right thing. You know, turn away from your sin, turn 180 degrees and live right. Yeah? Okay, well, let's add believe in there because repent and believe is important. So repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and then do good. Isn't that Christianity? Or is it? I want us to probe that this morning and this evening because it's so important that we grasp just how deep our problems actually go. I'm concerned because I think often our view of sin is way too shallow. And in fact, maybe we only preach uh, in our churches, generally speaking, half the truth about sin. So let's look at it. The book of Acts, uh, back to the passage that uh, Tim just read to us, Acts 26. And we're going to look here just at what Paul says about what Jesus said to him. Okay, this is after his journeys. He had his three missionary journeys. He ended up in, um, in Jerusalem, got arrested. Then he was in prison for quite a while. He was held in a, in a cell out on the coast for two years. And during those two years, he had several trials where he had to explain himself to the different Roman uh, governors. And the second one that came was just really frustrating. I can't understand this. So he got one of the local Jewish kings, Agrippa, a Herod, to come in because, you know, a Herod is bound to understand the things of Judaism, right? And so Agrippa's brought in, and Paul is, is standing before Agrippa, and he's making a defense of his life and his ministry, the very things that have got him in trouble. And you'll notice that where the reading began, this is page 790 in the Blue Bibles, where the reading began, it talks about, <coughs> excuse me, Paul was on this journey, he was going to Damascus. He's on the road to Damascus when suddenly this light from heaven and Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's not really normal English these days, is it? It's like Jesus had been prodding him and poking him and pursuing him and saying, come on, Paul, hear me, hear me. And Paul had been resisting and resisting, but he was finding it tough. And Jesus just appeared to him and said, okay, here I am. And Paul said, who are you? And Jesus responded, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. You see, Saul was out catching followers of Jesus and putting them in prison. He was, he was a terrorist on behalf of Judaism against believers in, in Jesus. And Jesus got his attention. And he said, get up, I've appeared to you, I'm going to uh, send you, I'm going to rescue you first, then I'm going to send you, verse 17. And look at verse 18. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then Paul says to King Agrippa, so I wasn't disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, that's the region around, and to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Notice some words being repeated in in those verses, 18 and then 20. Turn, repent, repentance, turn. These are important words. All the way through the book of Acts, you'll find these words, repent, and turn, repentance, and turn. These are a huge theme all the way through the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, they had a, their own Hebrew term for that, which is turn, 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 and it's just repeated and repeated. And through Acts, it is repeated, and it's repeated. In fact, repentance 11 times in the book of Acts. Turn uh, eight times in the context of somebody converting, shall we say. Sometimes it's used of just turning around and seeing someone, but eight times in the context of somebody's conversion or the preaching of the gospel, that makes a total of 11 plus 8, 19 times that this concept of repentance and turning is found in the book of Acts. I wish that we had the time this morning to go through every single one of them. I'd encourage you to do that. Go through the book of Acts and look for those words, repent, repentance, turn. And maybe you could set out a chart, and and on that chart you could put the reference, and then you could put from to, okay? Because it's about turning, isn't it? It's about 180 degrees from something to something. And if you did that, I think what you would find is the same thing I found when I chased that this week. What we have here in Acts 26 is the only hint of a connection between repentance and good behavior. Every other time, and this one, the repentance in terms of the from and in terms of the to is not about behavior. It's about relationship. And so you'll find the preachers preaching that they should turn from worthless idols, from the sin of rejecting Christ, from the sin of crucifying Christ. Turn from that and turn to what? No, 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 not what. Who? Turn to God. Turn to God. It's a relational turn. It's not from one type of behavior to another. And so I scratch my head and I wonder why is it 
that the world who listen to the church think that the church are simply talking about behavior all the time. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, do do this instead. And then the repentance is somehow the link when that's not what I'm seeing in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is our window into the early church doing gospel work. Now, the one possible exception isn't an exception, but it's verse 20. It's where Paul says, in these places and to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God, there's the turn to God, and prove that by their deeds. So you see, the deeds are not the goal. Even where he does reference deeds, it's still proof of turning to God. I'm just pausing a little bit to let that soak in because it's not what we're used to thinking. We tend to think repentance is turned from bad deeds to good deeds. The book of Acts is saying, no, repentance is turned from a relational problem to a relational solution. That is to turn from sin, and sins will be forgiven. There are a couple of references to that, including here, and turn to God, turn to Him. Now, that raises a question for us. Is sin about poor performance, or is sin really about relational rebellion? I think we need to do what we did last week. Let's go back to the book of Genesis and see how it all began. Genesis chapter 3, which I think is on page 4 in a blue Bible. Is sin about poor performance according to God's standards, or does it go deeper than that? Is it actually about relational rebellion? Genesis chapter 3. You remember, if you were here last week, Genesis 1 and 2, this, this amazing sort of exuberant description, uh, but I believe very accurate, of how God started everything, how He created the heavens and the earth, and then He, he filled it and, and just kind of set the stage and all the abundance of fruit and, and, and uh, birds and fish and everything. And then at the pinnacle of creation, He created humans in His image to rule over creation. And so God's generous, loving rule, represented by these male and female who would, under His rule and love, lovingly rule the creation. And it's all going swimmingly. It's going great until you get to chapter 3. And this is where it all goes pear-shaped or maybe apple-shaped, Genesis 3. Let's read these verses and, and ask ourselves, what is sin? Now, The serpent was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. There's a lot going on here. I believe this is a true a story, this is a description of what happened. This is where all of our problems have come from. You'll notice it's a conversation. It's a conversation between this serpent, who by implication is saying, look at me, I've rebelled and I'm okay, 
and the woman. And the woman has heard from her husband, obviously, that God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And maybe Adam said, listen, love, let's not even touch it. And so here she is talking to the serpent, and, and the serpent says, did God really say, there's the big question, whose word are we going to trust? The whole of history is being played out under that question mark. Every day that we live on this earth, we are living our lives under that question mark. Will we trust the word of God, or will we trust the word of the serpent? God said, you'll die. The serpent said, no, you won't. And so Eve has this conversation, and she says, you know, we, we're told that we shouldn't because we die, and the serpent said, you, you will surely not die. In fact, God's holding out on you. There's something you don't know, and I know it. I'm on the other side, and I want to invite you in to where I am, and that is that you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Boy, that's an offer. Become like God. What should Eve have said? She should have said, hang on a second, I am like God. I was made in His image. You see, there's this creation that comes out of the goodness of God, and God in, in His relational goodness has given everything, and, and He has lovingly uh, given us life in His image, and we are under His rule, and His loving rule is lived out through us as we live under His loving rule to creation, and I am, my eyes are on God, and He is good, and there's no problem. What are you talking about? Be like God. I am like God. You see, the serpent was offering a false view of God. Even in the offer, there's a lie. Because what he's offering is this. Why would you want to be a doormat? Why would you want to be under God when you can be like him? You can come out from underneath his rule and his love and his grace and all that stuff. You can come out and you can be in competition with him. You can be like a mini God where you determine what's right for you and you are the center of your universe and you become an independent power broker just like God. You see, there's a lie even in the lie that's told because God's not like that. God's not self-concerned. God's not self-grabby and, and self-focused. But the serpent offered that lie, and Eve bit on it. She went for it. And so which arrangement did they choose? To be loved by a loving, good God, or to be in competition and to become the God of their own universe? Even if we didn't have the Bible, we could look at our own lives and we'd know, wouldn't we? How many children have to be taught to become the center of their universe. They're all that way. We are all that way. That's the human default ever since Genesis 3. And so the arrangement went from this wonderful good relationship where it was all good, 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 and what did they get? They added evil. And how did that work for them? Well, let's read on and see how it went. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from him among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, 
the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. How did it go for them? They were promised, and remember, she was deceived. Adam went in, eyes wide open. Okay? They were promised. Godlike status, what did they get? They got a discovery of their own body. That's a letdown, isn't it? I mean, sometime, not when anyone's around, but just look in the mirror and say, that is a God? Hardly. That's what they got. They got an awareness of self. They got relational shame. They start hiding. They start covering up, getting fig leaves. I've got to, got to cover myself because I'm ashamed, because I'm, I'm naked, I'm inadequate. I, I'm not a God, and I'm trying to be. I'm the center of the universe, and it's embarrassing, so I'm going to pretend that I'm okay. I'm going to pretend that I'm in charge. I'm going to pretend that I can handle things. And when God comes walking in the garden, they hide, and the competitiveness is already there. The fear is there. And so when Adam's asked, what does he do? He says, well, your fault, God, because you gave me her. It's not me. Even what he said was fig leaf speech, wasn't it? Okay, Eve, what about you? What's your explanation? There's a serpent. I was just deceived. Fig leaf speech. And you see, that is the DNA of sin that has come down to every single one of us. Instead of being delighted by a delightful God, serving and delighting in Him, knowing and loving His loving rule and representing Him to creation, we've become competitors. Many gods where basically our whole orientation has curved in on itself and we've become lovers of self. I'm in charge. I will look after me. I will be in charge of what's best for me. I, me, myself, and I, I am the center of the universe. And what goes with that? God, I hate you. You see, that's the tension that we read all the way through Scripture. And so what's sin? Is sin the poor performance of taking a fruit? Or is sin actually the relational rebellion of wanting to? You see, when Eve looked, it tells us, was it verse 7, 8, something like that? Eve looked and she saw that it was pleasing and good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable. Her heart was stirred. Her heart was captured. We thought about this last week. We're heart-driven beings. And sin is birthed in our hearts, isn't it? Why do we sin? I don't know what your favorite sin is, but why do we sin? Simply because we want to. Deep down, we want to. Our hearts are, are, are incurved, and we want the freedom to say, you know what? No, this is good for me. I don't care if God says this is wrong. This is good for me. And so sin, of course, it's poor performance, but how much deeper is it really? It really, it's about relational rebellion, loving self and rejecting a loving God, hating Him, despising Him. And so what do we do with that? I mean, it's, it's kind of a bit overwhelming, isn't it? In fact, how does it play out? Let's think about that, because their actions were immediately to cover themselves with fig leaves. But how, how does sin play out? If it's not a performance external issue, but it's an internal issue, how does it show? 
I'm glad you asked. Let me grab a drink and I'll tell you a quick story. Jesus told a story one time about a man who had two sons. There's a younger son and an older son, and the younger son, maybe you've heard it, the, older, the younger son came to his dad and basically said, Dad, I wish you were dead already. Give me what's coming to me, because I can't wait around. I'm just tired. You're living too long. And his dad bizarrely gave him what was coming, his inheritance. And that younger son went off, and he lived the life. He, he, he lived for himself. He pursued the, the emptiness, the, the, the frivolousness, the craziness of an entertainment lifestyle. You know, he was really, oh, I better move my Bible. He was really all about himself, all about his, his fun and his activity and what he could do and splurging the money, and he was sinning. I mean, he was sinning like Blackpool style, you know, worse than that, like Amsterdam, Las Vegas style. That was sin, sin, right? And this son went off, and he just lived the life and ended up in a pigsty, and he, he came to his senses. That is, he realized that he's not earning anything there, and he wanted to earn something, so he decided, you know what, I'm going to go home because my father pays good wages. I'm going to try and get a job. And so he walked home with a job application speech in mind, ready to get a job because he wanted to be paid, because he wanted to get the money, maybe to pay off the shame, maybe just to leave again. Who knows? And when he came home, he encountered something that totally transformed him. He encountered a father who, who ran to him and humiliated himself and, and just went extreme lengths to show his son how much he loved him. And it was the love of the father that transformed that boy. So he couldn't even finish his uh, give me a job speech. He was just overwhelmed and like a, like a gawping goldfish, he sits in this party as, as the whole community stands around and, and eats and drinks and dances. And he's sitting there in the best robe and with a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet just going, I can't... I, why does my father love me like this? I just cannot tell. But the story doesn't end there because there was the older brother. And the older brother had never rebelled. He'd never gone away. He'd stayed home. He'd been a good boy. He'd been out in the field. He was working in the field and he came home and, you know, getting ready to put his tie on or whatever. And, and he was all, you know, about the home. And he got home and there he finds the party going on. And so he calls a young boy, says, hey, what's going on? And the boy says, oh, your father's, uh, your, your brother's come back. Your father's found him and brought him back, and, and they've killed the fattened calf, and they're celebrating. And the boy goes off to party, and the older brother just folds his arms. No way I'm going in there. That is wrong. That is out of order. And so guess what the father does? Second time on the same day, utterly humiliates himself. He goes out and he begs his son, begs him to come in, and his son refuses. It's a very poignant story for lots of reasons. One is that we don't know how it ends. It's left with the father begging, maybe even on his knees, with the older son absolutely refusing, hard as they come. But if you stop to think about it, there are some real interesting parallels between the two boys. One lived the sinful life, one lived the good life in the sense of being good, righteous, at home. But they weren't opposites. They both wanted to have their dad be a source of benefits. They both wanted to be paid. They both wanted to be employees. They both wanted their dad to give them uh, something so they could go party with their friends. One of them went off and partied in the far country. One of them wanted to go party with a goat and his friends just around the corner. 
but neither of them wanted relationship with their father. Neither of them liked their father. There was a despising of their father. And now here's the thing. If we're not clear about what sin is, we're going to think that that boy was the sinner and that one was good. And we think that, don't we? We get into that. We, we think there's a scale from, from, you know, zero out of 50, you know, really bad, to, you know, sort of 50 out of 50. If you could be consistently perfect, it would be over here. And those are sins, and these are less sins, and these are no sins. And we, we live life on this scale, and we, we competitively compare and say, you know, I'm not as bad as that person. I've never been on Crime Stoppers. I, I'm not going to be on Crime Watch. I'm not as bad as them you know, I, I'm, I'm a good person. But how many of those sons were lost? Both. They were both completely lost. One was lost in the far country like a sheep. One was lost close to home like a, like a coin. Jesus set the whole story up to make that point. They were both lost. Why? Because sin is not about performance. If it were simply about performance, then that would be sin and that would be good. That would be righteous. But the truth is, both versions of life are sin if there is a despising of relationship with God. Now, let's, let's think this through. That means that for some of us, the sin that is within us manifests itself. It comes out in the fruit of this kind of lifestyle. And some of us here are probably thinking, oh, I feel the shame even now. The things I've done, the places I've been, I'm so glad that there isn't a video recording playing right now because I would be utterly just shamed. The fruit of the sin in our hearts has come out in that form. There's others of us whose heart of sin has manifested in this form. It's different, but it's the same. Different color, different taste, you know, it will impress different people. That way impresses the people who want your money. This way impresses the people who want you to conform. It's the same, but it's different. But until we realize that the self-righteous, good performance kind of living is still an act of rebellion against God, we're really going to be struggling to explain the gospel to others, and we're going to be struggling to grasp it for ourselves because I think many of us come over here as well, don't we? Many of us are good people. We go to church and we do the right things and we don't steal and we do pay our taxes and we, we try to tell the truth. But if it's me, myself, I trying to do the right things so that I don't get judged, then it's just the fruit of sin coming out in a different way. And you can change the color, and you can put a dye in the roots, you can do whatever you like, but it's still sin is sin is sin, right? And we've got to grasp that, because if we don't, we're going to spend our whole lives thinking that, you know, I'm really glad that God saved me from that, which is great, I'm glad He has. But if He saved us for this, we're still as lost as we were before we started, and that's not what God saves us for. You see, the truth is not that we are zero out of 50 or 49 out of 50, you know, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You ever, you know, put it this way, if God's standard is 50 out of 50 and we make 49, we're still falling short of the glory of God. The truth is, none of us are at 49. We're all at zero. It could be that version of zero. It could be this version of zero. 
If we are the center of our own universe and we love ourselves and despise God, it doesn't matter whether you wear a baseball cap on backwards or wear a tie, it makes no difference. We're still zero out of 50. Maybe you've heard the illustration of a sheet of paper, perfect sheet of paper. If this is God's standard, if this is God's heaven, and I take a pen and put a black dot on it, is it perfect? No. And all it takes is one sin for us to be disqualified. What's the reality for all of us? Are any of us one dot people? No. We are all completely splurged with ink. There's none that is righteous, no one, unless we are brought into relationship with God. Because righteousness, goodness, is only to be found in in leaving behind the rebellion of setting ourselves up as gods and accepting his welcome back into the relationship that he designed us for. Now, that's bad news. I basically told you that it's not just that we're not good enough, it's that we're not good at all. That's kind of serious, isn't it? And and actually, I'm going to end almost there, and you'd be thinking, hang on a second, that's terrible news. We're stuffed. What can we do? There's no hope. There is hope. If the one represented by the Father in that story is one who will go to both the rebellious and the religious and humiliate himself to woo them back into relationship with him. If that is what God is like, if God is self-giving, and if God is willing to humiliate himself, and if God is, is understanding of us made in his image as relators, heart-level heart people, heart-level sinners, if, if God knows that's what we are, and if that's what God's like, and if God will come into this world to rescue us, to seek and to save us, humiliating himself in the most naked, shameful way possible, if that's the case, then there's hope for sinners like this person, and like that person. There's hope for sinners like you and sinners like me. You see, the problem goes way, way deeper than we ever imagined. And next week, we're going to discover that the good news is so much better than we've ever even dared to dream. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we... We've said this multiple times. We've looked at the Bible different times in, in, in recent years. And, and, and I know I've made this point before. Lord, I just pray that you would help it to be more clear to me and to each of us that apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before you. Lord, would you forgive us for trying in our strength to do the right thing, to to be God-like in a way that is self-concerned when you're not self-concerned. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who gives yourself to rescue sinners like us, zero out of 50 people, people who are completely marred uh, in every sense, who apart from Christ have never been able to not sin in one way or the other. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, convict us. Would you convict us deeper, more profoundly, shine the light into every corner of our lives, perhaps more than ever before. Just put your finger, Lord, on those things where perhaps we're feeling prideful or we're feeling self-confident and just show us just how broken we are apart from you. 
convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, all in connection with who Jesus is and his relationship with the Father. Lord, we we want to grasp just how bad the bad news is. And we pray that as we read our Bibles, as we pray about these things, maybe as we speak to each other this week and as we look uh, again tonight at another passage, Lord, would you stir within us both great conviction and also great appreciation for just how wonderful the good news of the gospel really is. Lord, we thank you that it's not about turning rebels into religious people. The gospel's about turning rebels and religious people, self-righteous people and, uh, and, and horrible sinners, all of us, turning us into those who are your sons and daughters, those embraced by your love. Lord, I pray that the that you'd shake us free from this scale where we compete and compare and lift our eyes to you, to your love, to your embrace, to your grace toward us. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you knew the depths of our sin and you loved us. And we thank you that you've rescued us. And Lord, we look forward to next week when we can celebrate that together. And here we sit, before you, asking you to work in us because we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's have a closing song. It'll be up on the screen. It's number 990. I will offer up my life in spirit and truth. It's a song of response in light of all that he's done for us. Lord, here am I, I'm yours. The response of a heart captured by a love so amazing. Let's stand together and sing this, and then after this is over, we'll take the briefest of breaks and move into a time of communion together. If you're able to stay, it would be great to celebrate communion and recognize all that Christ has done for us on the cross. Let's stand together and sing, I will offer up my life.